This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. All of my memories of him kind of came rushing back. I thought of that time that he threatened me, and I did feel really anxious and freaked out because that that was real and if if I had kept hanging out with him I mean we were we were young but if I kept hanging out with him who knows what kind of shit he would have tried to get me into you have to trust your gut and listen to yourself listen to your intuition and it also taught me that people can be really bad if someone gives you a warning sign or someone gives you a bad feeling you don't know what they're capable of, but that can be a sign that it's something darker than you think. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter, and I was telling Alexis before we started, I'm currently on muscle relaxer, muscle relaxers. I threw my back out yesterday, so apologies if I you know, I already fucked it up. So we'll see how this goes. It's going to go great. She's going to do great, guys. (laughs) It's going to go great. Who knows anymore? Do you want to know what day it is today? I really do. That's what I've been dying to know all day. Okay. So today is Wednesday, July 27th. There's a lot of good days. And I'm going to start off with it is take, it's not only take your house plants for a walk today, but it's also take your pants for a walk today. So if you are thinking of what you want to do today, put a pair of jeans on, grab your favorite house plant and get out there into the big bad world. Okay. I do our plants need to be walked. I mean, I get putting them outside once in a while so they can get the real sun, but you know, I don't like have think- a wagon. How do you pick one? I got to take them all with me around the block. Maybe take the smallest ones, but you know, it's like the same. There's that whole theory. If you talk to water, you say like nice things about water. It like changes the chemical composition of it and whatever. So, you know, you got to be nice to your plants. And okay. I wasn't nice to my plants. Alexis watered my plants yesterday. And she gave me one that she gave up on about a year ago and it's thriving <laughs> on my deck. I don't have a green thumb and I'm gone all the time. It's half not my fault. Half it is my fault, but you whatever. You need to get um, drought proof plants. The drought is I- in your home. I need to get a succulent. Um, it is also National Chicken Finger Day, so I need like, that, that is one. a good day. Yes, you know that that's chicken is day. the superior food. 
Absolutely. The you know? your meat. Yeah. That's right. All right. Well, that's all the good days. So that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. We've all heard the expression about the stars being in alignment, either for good or for bad. We're also familiar with the trope of people who grow up in otherwise upper-middle-class environments who, for whatever reason, go down a different path than their law-abiding peers. In hindsight, you can often see a series of decisions that takes them further towards a life of antisocial criminal behavior. And you could think of it in the sense that even the most exclusive schools with the best reputations have their black sheep among the high achievers. There's kids that, instead of taking the traditional road to success, end up drawing vulnerable young people into their orbit of bad influence. And we all know that peer pressure, combined with the bystander effect, where no one takes the opportunity to step in and prevent harm from being done to another, is very powerful and can even have very deadly consequences. So we begin today's case on August 6th of the year 2000. It was a great time for music. The number one song across the country was NSYNC's smash hit, It's Gonna Be Me, closely followed by Incomplete by Cisco. It was also the 35th anniversary of the Federal Voting Rights Act, which enforced the 14th and 15th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution and prohibited any discrimination in voting. At the box office, Hollow Man starring Kevin Bacon, who I love, and Elizabeth Shue is drawing big crowds on its opening weekend, as is Space Cowboys starring Clint Eastwood. And the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list featured the memoir Kitchen Confidential by the iconic executive chef Anthony Bourdain. And by the way, I just watched an amazing documentary about him called Roadrunner. And then also It's Not the Bike by Lance Armstrong. And the setting for today's case begins in Colorado Springs, Colorado, but the story will ultimately migrate to the Pacific Coast, from Los Angeles to Santa Barbara and to the Santa Inez Mountains, north of Goleta, California. But anyways, Colorado Springs, located in central Colorado in El Paso County, the city of around 468,000 people, is about 70 miles south of Denver. The city is the second biggest in the state and sits at the foot of Pikes Peak to the east of the spectacular Southern Rocky Mountains. Colorado Springs' economy is fueled by the defense sector, with many residents working in federal defense contractors. The strong presence of the defense sector in the city led to Colorado Springs being the backdrop for TV and movie thrillers with a political and military theme. Our first degree for today's case is named Chris, and Chris grew up in Colorado Springs. He knew it as a unique place which appeared to as many as one thing on the surface, but was something else underneath. Colorado Springs is an interesting place. It's very conservative. There's a big military presence, and it's also very religious. It's the home to the religious right. There's a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses, and a big Mormon community as well. It's a weird meeting ground for a lot of different extremists. In in many ways, very like white bread and clean and safe, but it always seemed to have this dark side to it as well. Just now growing up there, I had a lot of fucked up stories, just stuff 
that goes on there is really weird. And maybe it's true for every town when you really look into things and kind of the stories and secrets that people have. But Colorado Springs just seems to to just have a lot of strange stuff. Chris attended Cheyenne Mountain Junior High, along with lots of other local upper middle class kids. This school in particular had a reputation for being one of the best public schools in the state, with hardly any bullying or fighting you might expect to see in other schools. Then, when Chris was in seventh grade, a new kid started at school. And his name? Well, it was Jesse James Hollywood. And yes, that is his real name. Crazy. (laughs) Who? I know. What a name. I mean, what what a a name. name. So who was this mysterious new kid with this fabulous unbelievable name. At first, all Chris knew was that Jesse Hollywood had moved to Colorado Springs with his family from none other than LA. But it wouldn't take him long to learn more. He was just like this short little kind of boyish, like wannabe gangster kid. And just right off the bat, I was like, I don't I don't know about this guy. He was really short, but he had this deep scratchy voice like he had been chain smoking for years but he just really didn't like me he was always trying to kind of make fun of me in like little ways or just i don't know i just got a weird vibe from him from the beginning he was like nice to me half of the time and then kind of would say cutting things or kind of bully me in other ways and he was much smaller than me, but there was just something like intimidating about him. Something like part of it was his scratchy voice and he just wore like, you know, he dressed like a tip- typical early 90s kind of wannabe gangster hip hop kid. I think that he was bad from early on or felt that he had something to prove. He was a small kid. And I felt like he he felt like he had to overcompensate and act really tough. I'm sure that he was bullied when he was younger, but I feel like it was it, those aspects combined with his dad and who his dad was and how they related. I don't know how he grew up exactly, but it seems like they moved around a lot. It wasn't long before Jesse started muscling in on the friendship between Chris and his best friend, Matt which was sort of odd since Matt and Chris didn't hang with the really cool crowd. And by Chris's own admission, Chris and Matt kind of just did their own thing. But regardless, Jesse locked in on Matt. He really liked my friend Matt and was kind of trying to poach like my best friend. And I thought, who, who is this kid? I think that Jesse wanted to be friends with Matt because Matt, my friend Matt had an older adopted brother this guy, Mickey, who was like a real metalhead, and he was kind of a small-time criminal, too. Right. And despite Chris's feelings about it, Matt actually liked hanging out with this new kid, Jesse. And the two of them even went to a concert by iconic 90s L.A. band, Body Count. So when Matt and this new kid, Jesse, went to this concert, Chris had serious FOMO. He hated it. And he was understandably a bit jealous given that Jesse and Matt were seeming to grow closer after attending this concert, where they reportedly had the best time ever. We've all been there. No one likes to feel left out. 
Colorado Springs is small enough that not many bands or concerts or anything ever came. So it was like a big deal. It was really exciting that Body Count came. And Jesse invited my friend Matt to the show. And I was really jealous. I really wanted to go. But I was in seventh grade and my parents wouldn't have let me go anyway. But I wasn't really invited. And yeah, I was really jealous and they had the best time, and it sounded like such a cool thing that I felt like I really missed out on. Nevertheless, Chris did his best to stay on Jesse's good side, and Jesse eventually invited Chris over to his place to hang out. And Jesse lived in a super fancy and expensive neighborhood in the hills called Broadmoor. When Chris got there, things just seemed kind of weird. Instead of the mansion looking like something out of an interior design magazine, as you'd probably expect from the neighborhood, everything was still in boxes on the floor and there was hardly any furniture. Jesse seemed really indulged, and it also seemed like he was just allowed to do whatever he wanted with minimal, if any, parental supervision whatsoever. But Chris did meet Jesse's parents, named Jack and Lori Hollywood. I met his mom, and she was really sweet. And she seemed like she was trying to to figure out what he was into, if he was up to no good or what. And then I met his dad and his dad just like really kind of freaked me out. I don't know how else to describe it, but he just had a really like a really intimidating presence. And I asked Jesse what his dad did. And he said his dad was a professional gambler. And it just didn't really add up to me that they lived in this big mansion and his dad was a professional gambler and it just got a weird vibe from it. We don't really know what Jack was doing for a living in Colorado Springs, but rumors were going around that he was dealing illegal substances. That being said, we want to reiterate that this is a rumor circulating a middle school, so definitely to be taken with a grain of salt. Someone's said they had heard a rumor that his dad was like a drug dealer, but that he was he was actually providing dealers at high schools with pot to sell to to other kids, which just seems like the most despicable kind of drug dealer. And I don't know if that fully checked out, but I've heard that he was into some shady stuff and, and it makes sense. Jesse kind of played off like he didn't know that, but I think he was aware. So Chris is at the mansion and the group decided to head out. And it wasn't long before they were causing trouble in the neighborhood, stealing chrome valve covers off of cars. Chris got busted and Jesse hightailed it out of there. Instead of ratting on his friend, Chris just took the rap for both of them. I don't know what his real intentions were for inviting me over. I almost feel like looking back on it, like he was trying to like suss out if he could use me in some way. He was like such a bully, but in, in this way that he was just, I I don't know. It was hard to tell, but I almost got a sense that he was like, let's see what bad shit I would, I would do. He could get me to do. The day that I got caught stealing those chromies with him, I walked back to his house and he was like, whoa, man, that was fucked up. Did you get caught? What happened? And I told him and he he thought it was cool. He seemed to like be be into it that I got caught and that I didn't turn him in. And that was the whole thing because the guys were like trying to press me on who is your friend. I was like, 
and I wouldn't rat him out or give them any information. Chris's parents weren't impressed, to say the least, and he wasn't allowed to hang out with Jesse Hollywood anymore. And Chris, in retrospect, was fine with this. I mean, if you looked up wrong crowd in the dictionary, you would have seen a picture of Jesse Hollywood's face, and he understands why his parents made that call. After that, though, Jesse's attitude towards Chris shifted yet again, and he snapped back to being sort of shitty and mean to him. And things remained cool between them until about a year later. Chris was in the phase where he was experimenting and he wanted to buy some weed. He heard that Jesse had some, so he approached him and asked him about it. Jesse said, sure, Chris could buy from him. So Chris gave him $20. So he took my money and just never gave me any pot. And like a week after, he gave me what looked like either a bit of shake or like kind of pocket lint or something. And he just laughed at me and he was like, there's your pot. And he just thought it was really funny that he just ripped me off like to my face. And I was kind of like intimidated and I was, I was pissed off because like $20 was a lot to me at that point, but there was nothing I could really do about it. He was like, at least came off like a tough guy. Chris was already done with Jesse, but this sealed the deal. Jesse appeared to legit not be a nice person, and he was done with him. But unfortunately, the pot-lint incident wouldn't be the last negative interaction that Chris had with Jesse Hollywood. And the whole thing started when he ended up at the apartment of Jesse's girlfriend. The last, like, interaction I really had with him was when I was in ninth grade. I was hanging out with another friend, my friend Nathan, and... We went to this girl's, this girl Amy's apartment who had been dating Jesse on and off for a while. And I think she kind of liked my friend Nathan. And they were talking and hanging out. And I was just there, not really doing anything. The next thing Chris knew, he was at home and his dad said that there was a friend on the phone for him. When Chris picked up, he was surprised to hear Jesse on the line. And he was even more surprised at what he said next. Jesse was like, oh, I heard you were hanging out with Amy. Don't fuck with my girl. Don't hang out with my girl or I'll I'll fucking kill you. And I was like, what? And he was like, you better not be hanging out with Amy. And your friends better not be hanging out with Amy or I'll fucking kill you. I was really freaked out. I mean, I didn't. I didn't think he was totally serious, but I'd never been threatened before, and I never really have since. He called my house and, like, threatened me for literally nothing at all. And I felt really freaked out, and only only years later would, would it, like, make sense. I feel like I had some kind of instinct at that moment that he actually was a bad dude. At this point, Chris was about to start ninth grade. And when the new school year started, he breathed a huge sigh of relief when he learned that Jesse Hollywood and his family had moved back to L.A. Chris didn't need or want the drama that seemed to follow Jesse everywhere. And life moved on swimmingly for Chris. He didn't really give Jesse James Hollywood another thought. After senior year, when Chris graduated high school in 1998, he moved to Santa Fe to attend college. And it was there that he received a phone call out of the blue from his friend Matt with some unbelievable news. Jesse James Hollywood had been featured on an episode of America's Most Wanted, and it was bad. He was on the run for murder. 
I was like, bullshit. That is not true. That's ridiculous. But a few days later, I was watching TV at night and the episode of America's Most Wanted came on about Jesse. And it was, it was so surreal because the, the, the episode came out while he was a fugitive. I was seriously shocked. And it was kind of weird too, because all of my memories of him kind of came rushing back. I thought of that time that he threatened me and I did feel really anxious and freaked out because that, that was real. And if, if I had kept hanging out with him, I mean, we were, we were young, but if I kept hanging out with him, who knows what kind of shit he would have tried to get me into. Chris was understandably rattled, but he wasn't completely surprised. He knew Jesse was a bad dude with a Napoleonic complex. You know the one where vertically challenged guys have an irrational level of insecurity and anger that they take out on everyone else. But Chris never thought his former frenemy would actually end up murdering someone. He had no idea what had happened, let alone to who, when, and most importantly, why. So to answer these questions, you know the drill, we gotta go back. It was 1995 when Jesse and his family moved back to Los Angeles from Colorado Springs. But first, we're going to give you a little bit of background on Jesse himself. Jesse James Hollywood was born on January 28th of 1980 to his parents, Jack and Lori Hollywood. And like we were talking about earlier, the name is kind of unbelievable. It sounds like something in a movie. It's pretty crazy. But apparently he was named after his uncle. As a teen, Jesse excelled at baseball and attended El Camino Real High School. His mom, Lori, was loving and supportive, while his dad, Jack, coached Jesse and his friends at the local Little League. Jack was a pretty introverted guy who looked after his family, and at one point he opened up a baseball card shop and also tried his hand at running a wholesale business for cars. However, word has it that even back then he was a big player in dealing marijuana. When Jesse was in 10th grade, he was expelled for verbally abusing a teacher, and he transferred to Calabasas High School and had to quit baseball after sustaining injuries. And by the year 2000, not much had changed since high school for 20-year-old Jesse James Hollywood. While Chris was off starting college in New Mexico, Jesse had become a drug dealer who'd managed to buy his own three-story house in West Hills, California, all of this by the age of 19. And he also was driving a black Mercedes and had a sports car at the time. So he kind of adapted to this lifestyle that it's rumored his father led. And Jesse's place, this house this 19-year-old owned, became the go-to for all sorts of vulnerable people. People who wanted into the illicit world that Jesse crafted and people who wanted to party and do drugs. Some of these people needed drugs. Some of these people owed him money for the drugs that he gave them, money or otherwise. And the stereotype is that drug dealers always seem to be owed money by someone or several people at any given time. And Jesse was smart and strategically recruited certain friends of his into working for him as runners. And he was also super intimidating, a characteristic he only refined since Chris encountered him in middle school. And instead of like-minded people who were ambitious to make their name as suppliers, Jesse's runners had somehow fallen through the cracks. They were all fighting their own inner battles, and Jesse knew he could easily manipulate them by making them entirely reliant on him as their source of income. What was different about these kids, though, is they didn't really come from the type of home environments that you would expect. Their parents all worked, and their families had money. Some had criminal records, but others didn't. 
But if they failed to deliver the cash back to Jesse, they became almost indentured servants who had to repay what they owed by doing things like cleaning his house. Someone Jesse did business with often was a 22-year-old friend of his named Ben Markowitz. Jesse lived just a few blocks away from where Ben lived with his family, and he and Ben had actually been childhood friends. In 1999, Ben started buying marijuana from Jesse. And unlike Jesse's other runners, Ben wasn't a pushover, and he wasn't as scared of Jesse as everybody else was, even though he probably should have been. But Ben, he wouldn't back down from a fight. According to some sources, by going through Jesse, he bought and sold around $30,000 a month worth of marijuana. So they're moving a lot of product and dealing with serious money. Ben's shady dealings and his associations with unsavory characters caused a lot of serious friction at home with his parents. They were really pissed that he was dabbling in this world. It's understandable. Eventually, Ben got a job working with his dad, but that didn't stop him from continuing to get in trouble with the law. He'd gotten trouble for slashing tires, for car theft, and assaulting a guy using brass knuckles. And that's not a great trajectory for someone who's only 22 years old. Things got to a breaking point when Ben's dad, Jeff, gave his son an ultimatum. If he wasn't going to abide by his parents' rules, he'd need to live somewhere else. And this sounds like a harsh decision, but it was an incredibly difficult one for Ben's parents to make. We all know that parenting is one of the toughest jobs in the world, but Ben simply wasn't respecting their rules. They were also deeply concerned about his influence on his younger and impressionable brother, Nicholas, or Nick, as everybody called him. Instead of finding a stable living situation, Ben ended up on the street. Of course, with Jesse living right down the street from him, he started spending a lot more time with Jesse Hollywood. Right. And they were hanging out together a lot until things got really tense one day between them. Jesse apparently had said something really disrespectful to Ben's girlfriend while they were all hanging out. Ben as a response, threatened to beat Jesse up. He didn't give a shit who he was, how much drugs he had, or how powerful he was. The tension of this argument was heightened by the fact that Ben owed Jesse $1,200. And on the heels of this argument, he said he wasn't going to be paying him back that money either. Then, boldly, Ben smashed up the windows of Jesse's house, and then he left. Ben left and started avoiding Jesse. Apparently, he was serious when he said he wasn't going to pay him what he owed. And you know what? Drug dealers do not like that. And Jesse decided that he was going to do something about it. Midday on August 6th of the year 2000, Jesse decided to confront Ben over the debt. So he drove over to his house along with his two friends, 20-year-old Jesse Ruge and William Skidmore. And as they were driving the few blocks to Ben's house, Jesse saw Ben's little brother Nick walking down the side of the road. And this sighting would set off an ominous chain of events that no one could have ever seen coming. A chain of events that would ultimately change, ruin, or end the lives of everyone involved in the story. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop, or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways, and with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences, and before you know it, boom, conversations. 
Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. As Jesse Hollywood and his cohorts drove to Ben's house to confront him about the $1,200 he was owed, Jesse spotted Ben's little brother Nick on the side of the road just walking along. As Jesse's car slowed to a stop next to Nick as he walked, he had no idea the sinister fate that was about to befall him. Nick was born on September 19th of 1984. He was a 15-year-old El Camino Real high school student. He was the first child for his parents, Jeff and Susan. The couple married following the breakdown of Jeff's first marriage, from which he had two older children, Ben and a daughter, Leah. And we've been talking about Ben in this episode so far. So that's his half-brother. The family lived in the affluent LA neighborhood of West Hills. Jeff ran his own small business manufacturing aviation parts, while Susan was a stay-at-home mom. Nick was an energetic, well-rounded kid. He loved sports and he loved theater. He was known for his fantastic sense of humor, and he really liked making his family laugh. And right now we're looking at some photos of Nick, and he just looks like this normal, really cute kid, and he had his whole life ahead of him. He's wearing like a cute little suit in one of his pictures with a little bow tie. He had like brown gelled back hair. He was really, really adorable. He looks like everyone I went to high school with. He's like, he looks like he's tall. You know, he's, 
he just looks sweet. He looks like, you know, your average kid. He's like turning into a young man. Like that's what I would kind of think of the time that he was in. Totally. And, you know, he was a really good kid as described by those who knew him. But like any teen, he started testing boundaries. Age 15, it's when you start sort of dabbling in those curiosities. And he experimented with marijuana. In fact, the night before, Nick was seen walking on the side of the road by Jesse Hollywood. He had had an argument with his parents after he came home at midnight. His bulging back pocket made his parents immediately suspicious because they'd previously caught Nick with Valium and weed and were worried that he was going to go down the same path as his troubled older brother, Ben, and that maybe Ben's bad behavior had already rubbed off on him. Remember, that's why they didn't want Ben in the house. Nick's parents demanded to know what Nick was hiding, but Nick responded by taking off out of the house. He didn't come back until his parents were asleep. But by this stage, the parents decided to leave it and just talk to their son in the morning when everyone had cooler heads. But when Nick woke up, he headed out for another walk without seeing his parents. He didn't want to deal with it yet. They were in a fight and he still needed to cool off. He was still angry about what happened. Little did he know, he would never see his family again. When Jesse Hollywood and his two associates saw Nick, Jesse came up with an idea. He could abduct Nick and refuse to return him until Ben paid his debt. And clearly, this is a really bad idea, but Jesse was too stupid to realize the very serious implications of an idea like this. And he thought he was just a genius. Brilliant. Brilliant. So Jesse jumped out of the van, pinned Nick up against a tree, and demanded to know where Ben was. Then William punched Nick in the stomach and forced him into the van. Nick said that he had no idea where his brother was. And Jesse responded, if you run, I'll break your teeth. Your brother is going to pay me my money right now. He told Nick that he was being held over Ben's debt. The group drove north on the 101 headed for Santa Barbara, which was about 70 miles away. Jesse made Nick empty his pockets, which contained Valium and weed. And Jesse told Nick that he could smoke and take one of the sedatives. And I can't even imagine what Nick's state of mind was in it right now. He was probably so scared. So in this situation, he kind of did as he was told. Right. And the group then drove to one of the cohort's houses. Now, this is Jesse Ruge. So there's two Jessies in the story. So we're going to call Jesse Hollywood, Hollywood, and we'll call Jesse Ruge, Jesse Ruge. (laughs) So two Jessies is confusing, but that's the best we got. Sorry, it's not more creative. So this group drove to Jesse Ruge's dad's house, who lived in Santa Barbara. And there, they just started partying. They started plying Nick with drugs and alcohol. As this whole group partied, and blared music, and was playing video games. Jesse Ruge's dad actually met Nick face-to-face and invited him to sleep over that night, presuming he was a normal guest partying with his son, as opposed to being abducted, which is what actually happened. Jesse told Nick that as soon as they found Ben, they would take him home. Nick was then taken into a bedroom where his wrists and ankles were bound with duct tape. But later, a friend of Jesse's saw Jesse Ruge and Nick hanging out on the couch, And at that point, Nick didn't seem to have any tape on him, and he was apparently playing video games and smoking bongs and seemed to be having a good time. So it was confusing for some of the people who were around who didn't know what had happened as far as the abduction. Jesse Hollywood eventually left, leaving Jesse Ruge to babysit and be responsible for Nick. And at around 10 p.m., Ruge and Nick also left. Meanwhile, back in West Hills, Nick's mom, Susan, was frantically paging her son and worried sick about where he was. When Jeff and Susan saw Nick was gone, they thought that he was at a friend's place. 
but it was very unlike him to not respond to the pages. So the couple were really beside themselves. They called as many people as they could to try to track Nick down. Susan made a painstaking list of everyone she knew who Nick had ever met. And to make matters worse, they couldn't contact Ben either. The next day in Santa Barbara, more friends arrived at the other Jesse's house, Jesse Ruge's house. These people were named Graham and Natasha. They were both 17 years old. Nick had spent the night at Ruge's house. Remember, Jesse Hollywood had left and gone elsewhere. The foursome hung out. They were smoking weed and playing video games. Graham chatted Nick up casually, and Nick told him that he'd been beaten up, thrown into the van, and taken. No idea how Graham would have reacted hearing this. It's certainly an awkward thing to be told, but he was 17 years old. Lord knows what he was thinking. Honestly, I can't even put myself in his position. But we're acknowledging here that already three people had been witness to this abduction. Ruge's dad and his two friends who are now playing video games with their captive. The thing that made this really confusing for witnesses, like we've touched on, is that there were points where Nick said he looked fine. He seemed to be having a good time. He was talking to girls. He, he didn't appear in distress at various moments these other people saw him. So he looked like a friend of Jesse Ruge's that was just along for the ride and hanging out. So at some point, the group goes over to Natasha's house, this other new friend. And there, she helped actually treat an abrasion on Nick's arm that he'd sustained while he'd been thrown into the van. While Graham and Natasha were alone with Nick, they were said to have encouraged him to leave. But Nick told them that he was willing to stick it out for his brother Ben's sake. He seemed sure that his brother would find out where he was and arrange to come get him. Later that day, Jesse Hollywood arrived back at Ruge's house. It was the last time Jesse himself would see Nick as he wanted to keep his distance from being seen with the younger brother of the guy that he had serious beef with. About 36 hours had now passed since Nick disappeared, and his parents finally got a hold of Ben, their other son. According to him, he hadn't seen Nick or heard from him either. So now the parents start freaking out, and they reported Nick as missing to the police. Yet another day passed, and the next day would mark a very ominous turning point in the story. This was the day that Jesse called his attorney to get some advice about the situation that he was in. And his lawyer, completely shocked at the stupidity of what Jesse had done, made it very clear the seriousness of this whole situation and how life-ruining the ramifications could actually be. Jesse Hollywood and his two idiot friends had abducted and assaulted a minor. After a few days, Jesse called his lawyer and his lawyer was like, what the fuck are you doing? If you get convicted for kidnapping, you could spend your life in prison. Jesse's lawyer advised him to clean this situation up right away, to call the cops and return the minor in question to his family immediately. Needless to say, Jesse Hollywood did not take his attorney's advice. Jesse, acting out of self-preservation, hubris, narcissism, possibly sociopathy, then made a cruel and cold decision. He picked up the phone and called yet another one of his cohorts, 20-year-old Ryan James Hoyt. And Ryan owed Jesse $1,000. The pair agreed to meet. There, Jesse gave Ryan a duffel bag containing a TEC-9 semi-automatic handgun, which had been modified into a fully automatic assault rifle. He sent Ryan away with clear instructions. If he killed Nick, he would be able to clear the debt. $1,000. That's it. That's what he was going to get cleared for killing a 15-year-old boy. He seemed like he was 
trying to prove something and probably felt like, oh, shit, I fucked up. I need to make this situation go away. And he had people working for him that were even dumber and crazier than he was. But I I feel like he's kind of like a like a wannabe gangster Charles Manson in this situation. I think he fully ordered and was responsible for what happened. At the same time, Natasha, who had encountered Nick at Jesse Ruge's house, was increasingly concerned about the situation. Doing the right thing, she went to her mom, who was a criminal defense attorney, and gave a vague description of what had happened, only saying a boy she knew might be in trouble. Her mom advised her to call the cops, but Natasha didn't. She wanted to be sure things were as bad as her gut told her. She went to Graham to talk it out and was stunned when he told her that Ruge had said Jesse had offered him $2,000 to kill Nick. It's so crazy to hear about how many people knew about this situation and how many opportunities there were to derail this plan. Opportunities to save Nick that were squandered. This is the bystander syndrome we were talking about at the top of this episode. I get it. People are afraid to get involved. People are afraid to get in trouble. People are afraid they're overreacting or overstepping or making a big deal out of nothing. But this was a 15-year-old's life and no one stepped in to help. So when Natasha talked to her friend Graham about this, Graham assured Natasha it wouldn't actually happen. That he'd heard from the guys that really they were just going to put Nick on a Greyhound bus home and everything wouldn't be fine. No one was going to kill Nick for $2,000. This was just talk. Graham impressed upon Natasha that none of them would actually do anything to piss Jesse off because who knew what he was capable of? Graham later said that as far as he could tell, Nick wasn't scared. It was said that Nick reasonably seemed to think that when the group had their fill of their multi-day bender, they'd drop him off back at home like they said. But Graham was wrong. Graham was wrong about a lot of things. What's really scary about this, uh, what's creepy and disturbing about the story too, is that the kid never thought he was in danger. He was kind of having a good time. He was partying hanging out, thinking like, oh, this is going to blow over and they're going to release me. And if they did release him, he probably would have tried to not press charges. I'm sure something would have happened to Jesse, but he was just like totally innocent, had nothing to do with any of it and just got swept up by this bullshit. While all this was going on, Natasha's 16-year-old friend Kelly had also joined the group at Jesse Ruge's house where Nick was. Kelly found out what had happened and was just as concerned as Natasha. She told Nick that she was worried, but he replied that it wasn't a big deal, and he actually joked that it'd make a great story to tell one day. He was still sure that Ben would come get him. He was lighthearted, optimistic, and because of how nice Hollywood's henchmen were being towards him, he was sure that everything was just going to be okay. So with everyone none the wiser, apart from Hollywood and Ryan Hoyt, Ruge suggested that they relocate to a Santa Barbara motel called the Lemon Tree Inn to let their hair down before Nick went home. They could have a real party there as opposed to at one of their parents' houses. So Graham's mom drove the group there around 5.30 p.m., yet another adult, Graham's mom, unknowingly a witness to this horrifying abduction. This whole time, any parents, anyone who came in contact with this group had no idea what was happening. They just assumed, again, Nick was one of these partying teens because he looked happy and everyone seemed to be being nice to him. What a horrible thing to learn after the fact that you're so wrong about this. At the motel, the group partied in the room and they swam in the pool. Natasha again broached with Nick the topic of leaving. 
He replied, it's not like I couldn't do anything right now. I just don't want to. I don't see a reason to. I'm going home. Why would I complicate it? And this whole thing kind of seemed to make sense to Natasha because why would Nick really want to poke the bear? At around 11 p.m., Kelly and Natasha left to go home. Rug told Graham that someone would drive up to L.A. to collect Nick. While they waited, they kept drinking and smoking weed like normal. And Nick eventually passed out. Right. And while Nick was sleeping, not long after, there was a knock at the door. The guys opened it and saw Ryan Hoyt. And he walked inside and placed the duffel bag containing the semi-automatic turned automatic weapon on the floor. Ryan told Graham to go get in the car outside. And it's not known exactly who came up with the plan for what came next. We do know that Graham was extremely familiar with the place they would go. Ryan and Graham set off up Highway 154 into the Santa Ynez Mountains within the Los Padres National Forest, just north of Goleta, California. When the pair arrived at their destination a half an hour later, Ryan got the duffel bag, a flashlight, and two shovels from the trunk and took Graham up to a trailhead called Lizard's Mouth. Ryan instructed Graham to dig deep, seven feet by two feet whole. Graham later claimed that he thought Ryan was going to kill him then and there. Instead, he didn't. Ryan told him to walk back down the trail where they both got back into the car and returned to the motel in the early hours of August 9th. Ryan and Graham picked up Rug and Nick, who was still heavily under the influence of weed and Valium. They drove back up to Lizard's Mouth, where Ryan ordered Rug to blindfold Nick and bind him with duct tape. Graham claimed that he led the way up the trail before becoming overcome with fear and freezing on the spot. Ryan and Rug continued to pull Nick up the trail into the darkness where Graham had dug the shallow grave only hours earlier. At the designated spot, Ryan struck Nick over the head with a shovel, knocking him into the grave. Then he callously shot him in the torso and the head with a nine-round burst from the firearm. Eventually, the gunfire stopped because the weapon jammed, but it was too late. Nick had been killed. Rug, apparently, was so overcome with shock that he threw up, but Ryan reportedly just laughed. And, okay, Rug, you're so shocked you threw up, but you knew this was coming yeah. for days. Like, you were so complicit in this, and it's so uh, it's so disturbing. Nick's killer then tucked the gun under his knees and buried him under the foliage before driving back to the Lemon Tree Inn. Like it was nothing, like Nick was nothing, and his life meant nothing. A few hours later, they all went home. Rug then gave Ryan $400, which Ryan used to go shopping. And unfortunately, the group, especially Graham, who was really familiar with the area, weren't too smart in terms of where they decided to bury Nick. The shallow grave where he was buried wasn't in a concealed area at all. Lizard's Mouth is a popular hiking trail with a fair amount of foot traffic. Around 1 p.m. on August 12, 2000, three hikers in the Los Padres National Forest noticed a really bad smell. Under a bush near a large boulder, they found a human-sized mound of recently disturbed earth and pieces of clothing poking out of the forest litter. They immediately called the police. When Nick's identity was confirmed via fingerprints, his parents and siblings were totally shattered. Ben felt his brother's death was all his fault, and his mom, Susan, understandably apportioned some of the blame to her stepson. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. 
And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Fifteen-year-old Nick Markowitz's horrifying abduction and murder was shocking, heartbreaking, and senseless. Once Nick was identified as a victim, the media exploded with national news coverage. Who would do this to this teenage boy, and why would they do it? The investigation was intense, and it was focused. Less than two days after Nick's body was discovered, police got a tip. When Nick told Natasha he was hoping he'd be returned home, she felt Nick was confident he'd eventually get home. But by now, she found out what really happened. In conjunction with her parents, Natasha called the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department, which was already cataloging a multitude of tips being received. She gave officers the details of Jesse Rugg, Graham, Ryan, and Will, and agreed to cooperate with authorities in return for immunity from prosecution. On August 16th, the four young men were all arrested. Our first-degree Chris, who had watched this unfold from afar, was blown away and came to terms with some realizations. The whole situation definitely made me aware that you have to trust your gut and listen to yourself, listen to your intuition. And it also taught me that people can be really bad. If someone gives you a warning sign or someone gives you a bad feeling, you don't know what they're capable of, but that can be a sign that it's something darker than you think. But of course, we're not done with this story just yet, not by a long shot. You see, before the cops could track Jesse Hollywood down to bring him in, he'd made a run for it. He initially headed east to Colorado Springs, where the Hollywoods lived briefly and where he met our first-degree Chris. According to Dateline, as tips came in, police discovered Jesse Hollywood also fled to Las Vegas, where he and his girlfriend stayed at the plush Bellagio Hotel. There he withdrew $24,000 from his bank account. He went back to California and at some point went north to Canada. But after that, police lost track of him and he vanished into thin air. Police interrogated his accomplices at length, but they couldn't provide any information about where Jesse Hollywood could have gone. And you couldn't turn on the TV anywhere in the country without seeing Jesse's face. An international manhunt was underway as he was added to the FBI Most Wanted's list, a 50000 reward from the Markowitzes, in addition to the $20,000 from the FBI, was an offer for anyone who could provide information leading to Jesse's arrest. Law enforcement issued a warning to the public that he was considered armed and dangerous and should not be approached. Chris was in shock that not only had Jesse killed someone, but that Nick was only 15. I mean, he the, the kid that he had killed was 15, and my son right now is 15 and like his family lost this kid over the dumbest shit and it's it's just so it just angers and frustrates me so much 
So speaking of Nick's parents, they were determined to hold everyone accountable that they could. Given the amount of people who had come into contact with their son after his abduction and when he'd ultimately be murdered. In August of 2001, the couple filed a civil suit against 32 people, including Jesse Hollywood, his parents, his girlfriend, and his attorney. The suit alleged that dozens of people who encountered the teen, including owners of three homes where Nick stayed, failed to help him, despite having every opportunity. The grieving parents also sued the LAPD and two of its officers for failing to properly investigate two 911 calls reporting Nick's abduction, and this part blew my mind. One call came from a young woman who saw Nick being hit and dragged into a van, and one of the Markowitz's neighbors had seen this too and seen this this kid being assaulted and dragged into a van, and the license plate number and details were provided to a 911 dispatcher, but no one followed up. No one tracked down the van, and no one called either caller back to follow up and get more information. The cops didn't take this seriously, and someone had seen Nick get assaulted and dragged into a van. Like, I cannot believe that, and it could have prevented the entire thing. In the LAPD's investigation into the response, the officers involved were found responsible for failing to appropriately investigate these emergency calls, and they faced disciplinary action, but who knows what that means. And even though Jesse was still on the run, criminal proceedings began for his accomplices. At their individual trials, all four men claimed that they had only acted out of fear of Jesse Hollywood and that he alone ordered the abduction and murder. Ryan testified at his own defense, insisting that he had no memory of confessing to the killing during a videotaped interrogation. All he told the court, quote, all I did was shoot him, which is fucking disgusting. Like, that's just like some minor thing that he did. He was convicted on November 21st of 2001 and sentenced to death two and a half weeks later. Jesse Rugg was convicted of aggravated kidnapping for ransom or extortion with special circumstances, but was acquitted on the murder charge. He was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after seven years. So William Skidmore was charged with kidnapping and robbery. He took a plea bargain and was sentenced to nine years in state prison. Graham was tried twice. He was acquitted of kidnapping Nick, but the jury was deadlocked on the murder charge. In later that year, Graham was retried as an adult, and he was convicted of secondary murder and sentenced as a juvenile. I mean, you dug the hole, dude. Like, give me a break. And you have to wonder, like, how do things escalate? None of these kids had criminal records. Most of them didn't. They were normal, like Santa Barbara kids. And I think, like, no one really thinks these things are going to happen, probably because they didn't know Jesse Hollywood all that well. I know. Right? Like, you're dealing with your other friends who are, like, talking about what this guy wants to happen, and no one knows this guy actually means business. No, because kids, like, fuck around so much when they're younger, and, like, nothing – you don't understand the, you know, consequences of your actions, of course, and you don't understand really how – the weight of everything when you're that young. So it's pretty fucking crazy that there are that many people that all, you know – Knew something or participated even passively. So in 2002, Nick's parents, Jeff and Susan, settled with at least 14 defendants, including the LAPD, for almost $350,000. A year later, in August of 2003, the civil suit was finalized. The couple was awarded $11.2 million. Jack and Lori Hollywood were expected to pay $50,000, while Jesse, Ruge, and Ryan were offered to pay $15,000 in funeral costs. I mean, it's such a hollow victory, you know, as if it was unlikely Jeff and Susan would ever see a cent. Susan did everything she could to keep Nick's face visible in the hope that someone would come forward with information about Jesse's whereabouts. 
She spent days, weeks, and months distributing wanted posters and cards that she'd made up herself. Police focused on Jesse's parents, strongly believing that Jack knew more than he was letting on. But the pressure took its toll on Susan, who found it more and more difficult to get out of bed every day. She turned to alcohol and prescription drugs to cope and tried taking her own life, resulting in multiple hospitalizations. It's so sad. We don't know much about what happened in the years that followed or how police would eventually hone in on Jesse Hollywood's precise location. By early 2005, investigators had narrowed their search down to a small East Coast Brazilian fishing town just outside Rio de Janeiro. Brazil might seem like an odd place to go, but it's really not considering that it's known for having quite relaxed extradition laws, which makes it an appealing destination for criminals wanting to stay on the lam under the radar. Authorities had already tracked Jesse to the country three years later in 2002. They just couldn't figure out exactly where he was. But according to Dateline, police tapped Jack Hollywood's phone and were surveilling phone calls between the father and son. So it's true. Jack Hollywood, Jesse's father, was helping him and was wiring Jesse $1,200 a month to stay afloat while he was in Brazil. And in Brazil, Jesse, who now went by the name Michael Costa Giroux, or Mike, told anyone who asked that he was Canadian. Reports ranged from him working as a nightclub promoter to being an English teacher. And he seemed to keep to himself, but ventured out under the cover of darkness to go bar hopping, which is how he met the woman who would become his girlfriend, Marsha Reyes. Marsha moved in with Jesse, and by March of 2005, she was six months pregnant with their first child. Right, and on March 8th, authorities had staked out the, a cafe where Jesse and Marsha were eating in Brazil. An undercover officer walked in and arrested Jesse for traveling on a false passport, which meant he'd be immediately deported back to the U.S. Sorry, Jesse Hollywood, your plan didn't work. At his arraignment in Santa Barbara in April, Jesse pleaded not guilty to murder and to kidnapping. And despite not pulling the trigger, even being present at the murder, he was staring down a possible death sentence. This was serious. Even though Jesse hadn't been prosecuted yet, the story had made such an impact that a movie about the case was slated to go into production. The film adaptation would be based on the events leading up to Nick's murder. In January of 2006, the feature film Alpha Dog, starring Sharon Stone, Bruce Willis, Justin Timberlake, and the late Anton Yelkton, was scheduled to premiere. Jesse's defense team attempted to delay the release, saying that Jesse wouldn't receive a fair trial given the publicity, but the movie came out anyway. Sorry, dude. So the prosecutor named Ron Zonin was removed from the case for misconduct after it was found that he cooperated with the filmmakers, which is so insane and like the biggest conflict of interest ever. Yeah, ridiculous. When Jesse finally went to trial in 2009, he testified that as the events leading to the murder unfolded, Nick had declined several offers to be dropped back home. Highly doubtful, dude. Jesse Hollywood admitted to owning the murder weapon, but said he stored it in the garage of Ryan's grandparents' house. He hadn't given it to Ryan. Of course not. Him? Jesse Hollywood? Do something like that? Jesse claimed he was outraged when he found out that Ryan had shot Nick, arguing that at no stage had he asked or told Ryan to shoot this innocent teen. Jesse Hollywood's denials did not work. On July 8th of 2009... Jesse was convicted of kidnapping and a first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And what's become of Jesse and his co-accused today? Graham was released just before his 25th birthday in 2007. Will Skidmore was released in 2009. In 2012, Jesse Hollywood appealed his conviction, which was upheld. And after serving 11 years in prison, Jesse Ruge was granted parole. In 2020, the California Supreme Court affirmed Ryan Hoyt's conviction 
in a direct appeal. As Chris, our first degree, reflects on all of this and looks at the totality of Jesse James Hollywood's actions, he, interestingly, suspects that his former frenemy is now remorseful. And he holds out hope that there can be some redemption for him. Knowing, like, who he was, I feel like he probably does feel really bad right now. I think he was a young punk. He didn't know what he was getting into. I'm sure he feels like shit about this. I think he's someone who could be rehabilitated. Because I don't... I mean, talking about it like he... He did seem kind of bad or rough from the beginning, but I don't think he was a total sociopath. I think he's someone who could come around. You don't really have to worry about the real gangsters and the tough guys. It's more the the wannabe gangsters. They're like out to prove something. And it always felt like he was being extra tough and he was trying to to prove something to you instead of just being like straightforward or direct in any way. Like Chris explained, even when you know someone is inherently of bad character, we stop short of entertaining this idea that they could be capable of something unspeakable. Jesse James Hollywood was intent on leaning into this gangster image, whether it was because he felt he had no future or to protect himself emotionally by not showing any weakness or to be just like his dad, he happily manipulated others into doing his dirty work for him. Some people think things spun out of control, out of control to such a degree that Nick died and no one really is to blame. But that's not the truth. That's what Jesse wants people to think. Jesse knew right from the beginning that he was going to kill Nick and he didn't care. He thought he'd get away with it because he got away with everything. But why didn't so many of these people we've talked about today, Will, Jesse Rug, Graham, Ryan, Natasha, even other friend Kelly, who was there for a second, they could have done anything in the days leading up to this murder. They could have done more. They could have done something. They could have done anything. At any point, any of these young people involved could have made the choice to not go through with what happened, or at least tell someone who could have alerted law enforcement. We can only hope a heavy burden of guilt is something they'll carry with them for the rest of their lives. But this doesn't even compare with the weight of pain and turmoil that Nick's family continued to endure every day, knowing their son and brother's death was not only completely senseless, but entirely unnecessary. All right. Well, huge thank you to Chris for being our first degree guest for the show. If you are out there and you have a story to tell, please email us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. Please follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group, and we are having lots of fun bonus content on Patreon every single week. And check back tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close, but not that close. God, we gotta, re- we gotta refine that one a little more, guys. We gotta refine it. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are Court Documents, the LAPD, America's Most Wanted, NBC's Dateline, The Guardian, the LA Times, the Santa Barbara Independent, True TV, LA Magazine, USA Today, the Santa Barbara Daily Sound, ABC7 LA, and the Ventura County Star. 
And as always, our first three guest is always our largest source. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.